Welcome to Asia Edit et al, the podcast that brings you research publishing tips direct from industry experts. I'm your host, Trevor Lane. Hello. In this podcast, I'm joined by the editor-in-chief of GigaScience, which is an online open access peer-reviewed journal that's devoted to publishing research on open data and especially big data in the life science and biomedical fields. This journal started in 2012, but the existence of so-called data journals and the public sharing and publishing of data sets, code, and software may still be new to some researchers. So let's find out more from GigaScience's Editor-in-Chief, Scott Edmonds. Scott, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me, Trevor. So first, can you tell me how you got into publishing and then specifically uh, publishing a data journal? So I've been doing this for 15 years now. Like many people in publishing, I came from an academic background, PhD and postdoctoral research in cancer genetics at University of London and WHO Cancer Labs in France. And I did a few short postdocs and I just kind of got fed up of the sort of a bit hand to mouth, short contracts Mm. and, you know, feeding cells all night and the like. So made the leap into publishing and I started off at Biomed Central back in 2006 before they were acquired by Springer Nature. So that really got me into open access. Because I had a little bit of experience, I did a microarray experiment in my PhD. BMC were very good at genomics and bioinformatics. That was that was a big area. And all of the editors were terrified of these subjects. So they're like, okay, you take these. Mm-hmm. And I, I developed this niche and eventually ran the cluster of bioinformatics and genomics journals, launched BMC Medical Genomics. And yeah, basically kind of got this niche in genomics and bioinformatics publishing heard lots of interesting stories from some of our editorial boards at this time about this amazing place called Shenzhen where there's this um, organization called BGI that are doing these amazing things in genomics and heard lots of stories. I was very intrigued about this and, and people hadn't really heard of this. This is back in like 2009, 2010 and then saw that there was a, a job that was kind of slightly confusing advertising nature that they wanted and that BGI wanted a, wanted an editor. And so I applied and that's how I got involved in GigaScience. Oh, so are you in Shenzhen or Hong Kong? So I started off in Shenzhen for a year, setting the journal up. And then they then moved to the Hong Kong office when it was a bit more established And so, yeah, I've been based in Hong Kong now for a decade. Now, so how did that journal, GigaScience, start? And can you explain what open data is, which is one of its features? So BGI was the Beijing Genomics Institute and then left Beijing, moved to Shenzhen. And so they style themselves as the world's largest genomics organization. They have a non-profit and for-profit arms and they set us up in the non-profit part they were publishing lots of papers and they they wanted to set up a journal so 
I got involved at the beginning with Laurie Goodman, who also had experience. She launched Genome Research and was the first assistant editor when Niche Genetic formed back in the day. So we set up Giga Science, and there's a lot of journals out there, tens of thousands of, of journals, all doing very similar things. And we thought we're in this genomics organization. They've got giant supercomputers and a thousand computation biologists and, and things like this. So we decided we really want to do something different and, and leverage all of that. And thought we would focus on data specifically and try to use all of this infrastructure. We're in a pretty unique position to capitalize on that. So a decade ago, we launched GigaScience specifically to focus on large-scale data, biological, biomedical data, and to publishing what we call data notes, so articles describing a data set and giving people that credit for sharing it, and also software articles, and then research articles that bring together sort of data and software. That was our focus. And so we launched in 2012, and there had been data journals in... Some communities like Earth Sciences and, and the like have been doing this for much longer, but we were the first in the biomedical sciences area. And we built a data repository at BGI, which is uh, quite a unique thing. We had a data team, so we would help people share their data and had professional curators on hand to help them. And then the journal article gives that kind of traditional form of credit for the description that people can get their head around because open data is in a way it does what it says on the tin it's data that's open but it goes beyond that the open definition really talks about it needs to be openly licensed it needs to be usable and the like so there are many repositories and a growing number as well at GigaScience, we set up this GigaDB database for the stuff that falls through the gaps that may not have a home or maybe too large. We can host things that are terabytes, tens of terabytes in size. So there's basically no excuse for sharing this. We're in a data-driven age. Data is more and more important for everything we do. We've given people a, a way and a form of credit for going to the effort of, of sharing this stuff. So the purpose of open data isn't just to prove here's the working out, here's the data behind a paper for other people to reproduce or to check our work. I mean, that's one of the goals. But another goal is actually for other people to continue using the data set. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. There's the transparency, reproducibility side. You want to know, have people been doing this stuff properly? It gives trust, which is extremely important in what they've termed an infodemic vaccine skepticism and science skepticism and the like, but actually making this stuff open increases the trust. But then these are the actual usable objects in the 21st century that we really need. The data and the, and the software is more and more the key stuff that your fellow researchers need. But all of the focus has been on the narrative. And there's the famous quote from Buckhart and Donahoe, the computer scientist from 95 or something, that publishing is effectively just advertising. And the usable objects, the stuff that people actually need to use, it's the data and the software underlying that. And Effectively, in 95, that was lost. There was no way to get that. But in 2021, there's no excuse. We can go beyond the advertising and actually have the solid reusable objects. So this is the, the real beauty of it. Yeah. Now, something that's usually stated alongside open data is something called FAIR, F-A-I-R. So what are these FAIR principles of research data sharing and what special things do authors need to bear in mind? 
So FAIR stands for Findable, Accessible, Interoperable, and Reusable. And back in 2016, I think, the FAIR principles for scientific data management and stewardship were published. And I was the only author on the original paper in all of Asia. (laughs) So it's a bit sad. All of the focus has been in Europe and North America and much less out here. But FAIR basically means it's the next step, right? Making data open is is all well and good. And we still have a long way to do that. In so many areas and so many fields, we just don't even have the data accessible. But once it's accessible, you need to actually reuse it. And FAIR basically gives principles on what you need to do to do this stuff, to make it findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And the interoperability is really key. And it's thinking beyond humans, what do you need to do to make machines be able to use this as well? Because more and more, you're publishing stuff, not just for human readers, but actually you need to think about your machine readership for discoverability and the data mining and the, the machines will look at relationships between things. As the literature gets bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more, the way we interact with it is going to be filtered through machine learning algorithms, through tools that basically show you the content that is relevant to what you do and the machine readability side has been forgotten and underlooked so that's a key part of fair is it clear for people who work in big data like what they have to do to upload the data because they know that is going to be mined by ai algorithms in the future But people who don't work in big data, what do they need to do? They might think, oh, do I just upload an Excel sheet? Or is there some other format that I'm meant to be using? FAIR wrote down kind of ground rules, and then people have had to take FAIR and then actually take it to the next step to make it even more simple to understand. But FAIR is at least given the greater game plan, like this is the stuff you need to do. We need to focus on all of these additional parts beyond that. And particularly in the European Union, the Open Science Cloud, big entities and funders have tried to build these FAIR principles into their data repositories, into their various workflows, FAIR training, many, many things like this. Even even back in, in 2016, at the Hangzhou Summit, the G20 leaders did a communique supporting FAIR efforts. It's in much of the world it had quite a big impact in changing the way that we think about data. But Asia, yeah, we're barely at the first step, which is opening stuff up. And then FAIR is basically what you need to think about next. Things aren't going to get immediately completely FAIR. It's a kind of roadmap, the steps we need to take to make things more and more usable and get to the future that we need to. Okay, so on that subject, is open data and FAIR catching on worldwide in many different disciplines? But you said Asia isn't. So is it catching on elsewhere? And what are the practical benefits? Are they being actually demonstrated? So like a practical benefit, right, in the coronavirus pandemic So December 31st, 2019, basically the first statements, there's a new new type of pneumonia happening in in Wuhan. 5th of January, Zhang Yongzhen in Shanghai uploaded the first coronavirus sequence and it went public on the 10th, 11th of January. And then immediately, effectively, the pipelines and things were set up. BNT and Moderna, within a day or two, they had designed the vaccines that are now that have now been injected into all of our arms, right? Somebody shares data on the 10th of January, and then we actually have a putative vaccine 
designed within a couple of days. Uh, you know, within five days, they're creating diagnostic tests. They've realized that coronavirus has spread to Thailand and Australia. We've had a tough year or two, but think of how much worse it would be if we didn't have these vaccines, if we didn't have these diagnostic tests, if people had sat on this data for longer. So people do appreciate how important this stuff is. And it's been quite field specific. And so talking about this coronavirus genetic data, there's a several decade long history of sharing genomics data. There are data repositories, there's been global mandates that you need to share this stuff pretty much immediately. And that's what Zhang Yongzhen did, right? He followed the practices that go back to the Human Genome Project in genomics. So some areas of biomedicine have a 30 year old history of this. I mentioned earth sciences were pretty good at this. Some fields have been better than others. And then it is quite geographic as well. The FAIR principles, the people that drafted these were, a lot of the key ones were in the Netherlands, for example, and you know, a, a lot of the people were in, were in Europe. The European Union, Horizon 2020 and previous funding schemes were very pro-open data. The Wellcome Trust, big biomedical funders in Europe have been very proactive in pushing their fundees to, to share data. So some parts of the world, it's moved towards the norm. Unfortunately, Asia, we haven't had proactive funders in the same way. I'm hopeful that the, the next generation and funders will move towards what are becoming the norms and funders in much of the rest of the world. The same with open access. We have kind of lagged a bit behind, right? We're, we're normally a few research cycles behind the policies that have come out of North America and Europe and Australia. So hopefully we will catch up here, but it just takes time. Yeah, that's a point that the movements of open data, open research seem to be pushed by the funders, whether it's a charity or a national government funder. So in Asia, then, you gave a good example that the coronavirus story, how it began and where we are now has depended on sharing data. So how can we argue or put forward the case more in Asia? Uh, what the motivation is for researchers to share their data, because they might think that researchers own their own data, they should get many papers published from that data, they keep it private. So, and, and that's a very cultural thing, and that, that's really led by the funders, because in Europe, for example, you know, the Wellcome Trust and UKRI and European Union, they really believe that data is for the public good. So the, the people who pay for the data are the taxpayers, right? So it's nothing to do with the actual researcher themselves. It's not their data. It should belong to the public. The public wants cures. The public wants that vaccine in their arm in a very short period of time. They're, they're under no obligation that the researcher should sit on that data for several years, slowly publish publications at the pace that they want to publish them. That cultural shift is driven by the funders. And maybe the funders here are a bit behind on that. You know, there's carrots and sticks. And the people with the sticks are the funders and the people with the carrots are actually the journals. The journals actually have an important role here. And this is the beauty of data publishing, that even in a more conservative place like Asia, they understand a publication. They understand that form of credit from a, a journal that they can have this paper shaped object that they can stick on their CV and report back to the funder that like, I got this publication in GigaScience. And so this has worked really nicely here and, and around the world, we've seen a really nice uptake. People get it. And since we launched in 2012, we've seen really nice examples. With, for example, the Gates Foundation funded this giant 
agricultural project, the Rice 3K project. But overnight, this quadrupled the amount of rice genomics data to effectively feed the world, to help people tailor crops, to help the plant breeders actually mitigate climate change and really do kind of data-driven breeding to help world hunger and but it was a a monster monster project and the gates foundation and some chinese funders and the eerie the rice organization in uh, ngo in philippines all worked on this so they created the data and we basically gave them an incentive to just publish the data in 2014 and then it took them another four years to write up the analysis, you know, to basically analyze this in supercomputers and do all these downstream things. And so then they published that in Nature in 2018, right? So it was about four years later. But this was great. They didn't have to sit on the data all of that time. The funder wanted the data released, but some of the research organizations wanted at least some kind of credit for that. And we gave them a means to do that. So that's the beauty of, of data publishing. So we launched in 2012 and then gone mainstream since then. The, many of the big publishers have followed Bring in Nature, launched a journal, Scientific Data. Elsevier have got their data journal, Data in Brief. And Chinese Academy of Sciences launched uh, China Scientific Data. And so China's really got this. China's really got behind data publishing because they, they understand it. They understand publication. And so it's really huge there. Every time I go to conferences in mainland China discussing publishing, I see lots of slides and talks. It's all in in Mandarin, I don't understand, but they're like, oh, gigasites, scientific data, data publishing. So it's made a big impact there and has helped incentivize people sharing data. So that's a good thing of it. You know, we're using some kind of cultural means to get this important data out. That's good then that people are starting to think of data set as an object that they can share and get credit for. It's not just journal articles. Are there any legal or ethical issues authors have to be aware of when they're uploading big data sets? You obviously don't want to release any sensitive data, uh, data breaches and the like. So we peer review the data. We have in-house curators who are looking for that kind of sensitive data. Non-human data, it's pretty easy. You just have to be a bit more careful with anything clinical, for example. COPE has just launched a new data ethics flow charts and there's a, a force 11 cope uh, working group that i've been part of actually so it's quite a new area but we have been starting to draft guidelines and best practice in this particular area but for the vast majority of data it, it's fine it's good to have a pair of human eyes to double check these things also hold it against the fair principles look at the reusability look at the licensing and things like that now i believe that the recommended user license for data sets is CC0 or Creative Commons License Zero, which means public domain. So does that mean that any uploaded data in repositories is copyright free and free to use without any attribution? So there's a bit of an argument here, right? In FAIR, one of the key things to make data FAIR is to be very specific about the license and, and make sure that information is understandable for humans and for machines so that so we know what to do with it. And it has to be open. And open can mean completely public domain or open with attribution. And so different repositories have different recommendations. So CCBY, so attribution licenses are all well and good, but in the future have long-term issues. 
because of what they call attribution stacking. So as data sets get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you combine data sets with other data sets and with other data sets, it gets harder to basically track the attribution. So there are potential some limitations from trying to keep track of attribution. This was all pre-blockchain, but that's a whole other can of worms that I don't really want to get into and can slow things down. If you really want to maximize the bang for your buck, then it's recommended that that CC0, it's so open, it's not even a license. It's technically a way, but it is the way to go. And we recommend CC0. And the, the thing about attribution, it doesn't stand up in court very well. Attribution is more a cultural norm than a legal norm. We attribute papers not because we're legally obliged to, but it's good research practice. If you're not quoting your source, that's research misconduct. But it's more a gentleman's agreement in a way that we maintain this. So even CC0, there's no legal obligation to attribute. But as a scientist, you have an ethical and moral and cultural obligation to do that. So even CC0, you still need to attribute if you can. But CC0, at least it stops this attribution stacking issue in, in the long term that like 20 years in the future, when you're one data sets, this tiny little piece of matrix, it doesn't really matter anymore. That's the nerdy data licensing argument summarized. Well, that leads me to my next question then. So how do, like an incentive for authors, how can you get them to upload data? Is there something like similar to manuscript authorship? Can people be given credit for uploading data? And how can it be cited? Yeah, so data citation is a thing. The Force 11 data citation principles were published a few years before the FAIR principles, and we followed those before even those principles were founded. And if you believe that data is a first-class object of research, if you believe that data is as important as narrative, then you should treat it in the same way. And that means you cite it and attribute it. This is the whole rationale for data citation. And the means to do this so data site have been going for a decade, decade and a half. Crossref deals with um, digital object identifiers for papers, for narrative articles. Data site was set up to give digital object identifiers to data. And this is linked to ORCIDs. This is linked to authors in the metadata. You're given a little site, the data like this. And so culturally, you need to do this. But through citing it, you can then track downstream reuse and you get the same kind of credit that you do with a publication. So GigaDB from the very beginning, before the journal even launched, we started publishing data sets with now GigaDB data repository with data site DOIs. So you just need to make sure you cite them in the references. Uh, we give clear instructions how to do this. And then the whole point of the data paper is it's more metadata. It's a description on how you created that data, how you reuse that data. They go hand in hand. The, the data DOI and the paper DOI are connected and you can independently cite the data and you can independently cite the narrative depending on how you use it. Right. And you did mention that Giga Science publishes full research papers as well as data notes, which are the data description papers that point to the data set and what's the practical aspects of when authors submit material to your journal what's the timing for submitting the data set or software 
So in a way, we behave like a normal journal, but there's a little bit more going on at the very beginning and at the very end of publication. When a paper comes in, we basically, we do a sanity check for the normal things that you do sanity checks on for other papers. Is it in scope, ethics, consent, and does it look sane? But then we also really drill into the data, like, okay, is the data available? Because we want it available for peer reviewers to scrutinize. And so the editors check this and we have a a team of three uh, in-house curators who do this as well. So they go through and look for all of these sort of data entities, contact the authors and saying, I see this is available, but this isn't available. Can you give us reviewer access? Can you stick it in our FTP server and we will create reviewer access? And then once we have all of that together, then we start inviting peer reviewers and then make sure all of the peer reviewers have these links to scrutinize the data. And we hope that they scrutinize the data, but with peer reviews, you can't 100% control what they do. For very, very important data sensitive papers, there are some reviewers we know are super stringent. Our curators can also do a bit of an audit and, and create an additional review. But the key step of making sure that the data is at least available to the reviewers is a big step, right? There's that additional transparency and it's a step above just the pure advertising anyway. So we go through these rounds of review and then if it passes, then there's a final step where the curators then work with the authors all of the data may already be in third-party databases, which is fine. We make sure all of the accessions are there, everything's curated. Or if they need to go in our GigaDB repository, we create a data set landing page, basically a GigaDB data set. They collect a lot of important metadata from the authors, mint the data site DOI. We make sure that is cited in the paper, and then we publish it like a regular paper. Well, so apart from GigaDB, so authors can use other repositories? Yes. And quite often things can be in multiple repositories. We'll have like uh, NCBI accessions for the raw data code will be in GitHub, but we can then take a snapshot of that in GigaDB just to make sure people don't delete the GitHub repository. There's often intermediate and the actual results files that people don't generally stick in a repository, but we'll take those as well. So they'll curate this and link out to all of the external sources of the raw data And so that's the Giga Science process. So we've launched a second journal um, in the last year called Gigabyte. And this is much more focused on just much simpler, more granular data papers and software papers, not the more narrative side. So Giga Science are focusing a bit more because we take reviews and commentaries also focusing on, on data issues. And that's more home for like larger, more narrative discussions, bringing together multiple data sets and software and the like, and then just pure, simple individual data sets are catered more in these shorter gigabyte papers can come out more quickly. We've got this super cost-effective publication platform, cost is much less of a barrier. And we've tried to streamline the review process as well, where it's a lot more just a, a questionnaire style review. So that second journal, as well as the main one, Giga Science, so it does accept these data description shorter articles. Now, does that count as previous publication? Can an author then submit a fuller paper, traditional article to your journal or another journal? So that is a good question, because there's an argument that it's better to not sit on things, release the data first, release the analysis later. And when data publishing was coming together, 
F1000 launched, I think, the year after us, and they started publishing data papers as well. So they did a broad survey of most of the major publishers and asked them, did they see publication of a data set with a DOI and some description? Would they see that as prior publication that would preclude subsequent publication of uh, new results obtained from it? Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of the journals that they polled, apart from Cell Press, every other publisher they talked to said, this is fine, right? It's important to get the data out. So everyone came to the conclusion that data description on its own is fine, right? You know, you can publish the results later, or you could even publish it back to back, right? Because an analysis paper doesn't necessarily go into the same things as a data paper does. The materials and methods sections of giant analysis papers can be pretty brief. And the things that a data reuser would think about are only the addition of validation, all of these really detailed methods and protocols may get skipped out. So the data paper can provide a home for that. Hopefully it adds value. When we review stuff, that's one of the key criteria we look at. We don't want people who are just really blatantly what they would call salami slicing, but is this standalone data set? Is there a good argument for getting this out? And generally we've seen it is useful. The the other publishers have all come around and they've all launched their own data journals. So they've got an incentive to do this as well because they're all promoting their own journals. And even Cellpress has come around and Elsevier have their own data journal. So generally the consensus is that data publication is fine. It doesn't count as prior publication. So what actually goes into a data description paper or a data note? So it can't really be analysis, but does it include any methods or protocol? So the methodological side is very important, right? You want to go into as much detail as possible on how you created that, how it came together. And Gigabyte, we integrate uh, protocols.io protocols into the paper. That's another advantage of that journal that I don't know if you've seen this this platform protocols.io, but it creates these really nice stepwise protocols. You can run it on your phone, run it on your iPad. It's even got timers and all of that kind of fed into it. And it gives its own DOI and we can actually embed this as an interactive materials and methods section, for example. So you want a lot of methodological detail. The analysis goes in the analysis paper, but a bit of validation is useful. You want to have at least done a test or two to just show you can do stuff with this data. You're not doing the full experiment, but you may want to do some kind of benchmarking or QC tests or a very, very simple little analysis just to go, this works. And then a data reuse section is the final thing that we ask for and so this data reuse section it's thinking forward it's like what can you actually do what can other people do with this data so we want them to actually say that this data is useful for reproducibility or whatever but actually others can create tools of the nice thing about data papers is it's a way to potentially share underpowered data sets so lots of areas of research, there's a scientific question that you need a certain sample size to answer it. And unfortunately, you may not have had enough patients, you may not have captured enough animals, you may not have collected enough data yourself, but your and other people's data combined together through meta-analysis or whatever can answer this question. So data papers are a nice way to incentivize multiple people to release underpowered data sets. So they're never going to be able to write that big downstream analysis paper on themselves, but Putting it out there enables data to eventually come together. And these are the kinds of things that you will talk about in this data reuse section. You can say, look, this data combined with other data sets can potentially answer these interesting questions that I've not been able to answer myself. That's one of the really cool things about data papers. Okay, right. And now if someone wants to submit 
paper to you. I noticed that your journal is open access. So is there an author fee in the form of an APC article processing charge? Yes. So yeah, it's an open access journal. We charge an APC. So the data papers are a little bit cheaper than the narrative ones. Our charge for data notes is currently about a thousand pounds. It's like what, 983 pounds. so that kind of ballpark gigabyte we've tried to reduce that burden even more and so that's $350 at the moment because we can skip out a lot of the production and and other parts through this really cool um, XML platform and that includes the curation and uh, potentially data hosting as well so it's sort of an article and data processing charge that we have yeah And the review system is open review. So can you describe that process and and why you've chosen that mode? Yeah, and it's super useful for data, right? It really lets you look under the hood and scrutinize, have people check this properly. And so since we launched, we use open names peer review and the authors get to see the reports. If the paper is accepted, then the pre-publication history is visible and the readers can basically scrutinize these reports, see what people have done. And we want to credit the hardworking efforts of our reviewers as well. This can be quite a bit of work. You should get credit for, for doing it. So we give all of the peer reviews DOIs and link to the reviewer's name. And that means that the reports are independently citable because they can be a useful part of the whole conversation. And the reviewers can stick this on their ORCID profiles, share it to Publons, share it any which way they like. So this is open peer review. So the authors know the names of the people reviewing their work? Yep. Okay. Now... I understand the journals published through OUP, Oxford University Press, but also BGI, Beijing Genomics Institute. And how does that work? So, yeah, so BGI basically founded the journal. They effectively own the journal, but for GigaScience, we launched it with, with partners. And so for the first five years, we partnered with Biomed Central. And then 20... 17, we moved to Oxford University Press, and so they've been our publishing partner uh, since then. So we, we co-published, with, uh, but it's BGI technically own the journal. Okay. And uh, Gigabyte has been an interesting move because we've got access to our own platform now. We are publishing this ourselves. And so we're now effectively Gig Science Press, which is the publishing wing of BGI. And so, yeah, we're 100% with River Valley, who are our kind of technical partners for Gigabyte. And that means that we now have the ability to publish other journals as well. No, it's either Gigabyte or Gigascience. Are they indexed in well-known indexes, just for our knowledge? Giga Science, it was new with data journals, right? We didn't know, are we going to have any problems getting indexed? What are the citations going to be like? And all of those kinds of questions. But it's been really nice. It's really validated. This is a good thing. And so, you know, we uh, very quickly got in PubMed, DOAJ, Scopus. And then in 2015, we got in Web of Science. Our submissions quadrupled overnight. Mm. And not a massive fan of the impact factor we've signed dora and we don't advertise the impact factor you know we are indexed people can find out what the impact factor is they can google it to find it out but we don't push it but it does mean we get lots of submissions right some of these data sets and some of the software that we've had the software in particular has had like some of them have had thousands and thousands of citations and we've shown that people use this stuff it at least validates that this is worth doing this is being reused 
you can get traditional understandable forms of credit from doing what were kind of new things but yeah we've shown it's just the same as publishing a a regular paper in that respect gigabyte is new so we launched a year ago we're in doaj we're in a few small indexes we've submitted to pubmed but i'm waiting to see how that goes and for scopus and other indexes you need two three years of data at a minimum so we're not got to that stage yet but we're doing all of the stuff from scratch but it's being picked up uh, index by index over time so okay good luck with that and my final question uh, what do you see as the next step of data journals and open data and open research the thing i've really enjoyed with gigabytes having this platform allows a lot more interaction so you can do things on top of the data so integrations within Giga Science involves the OUP platform uses Aries. If you want to integrate something in, it needs to be created. It takes a very, very long time to implement. If I want to add a Sketchfab window, even though we're signed up for Sketchfab, it can take months. For Gigabyte, this XML-only platform, we can inject any interactive feature and effectively it makes no difference in the in the production time. And so we're making much more interactive articles with data visualization tools, data tools that let you browse imaging data, maps, really cool interactivity, which we're really liking. Data and software, they kind of merge the way things are going in the long term. And even in GigaScience, 10 years ago, when we started, we were getting very much standalone, here's a data set, here's software. And where I see things are going in the future, that's kind of blurring. People are packaging these things together in virtual machines. And now there's containers, these kind of packages involving all of the environments and data and software. We're getting more and more machine learning papers where you have the initial input data, but then you've got models and outputs and it's kind of getting more complicated in a way that sort of data and software is is kind of blurring and we're having to learn and come up with ways to present these things in more logical ways. But it also has the potential that people are creating tools or a means to insert these things in our paper. So it's a lot more interactive and understandable. In the world of COVID and, and people skeptical of data, if you can create a, like a cool visualization, like interact with this data in a form that even a non-scientist can see is like, this is real data. I can kind of get my head around this from a really cool visualization. And it's getting more complicated, but it's also getting more understandable in a way if you can present these things in cool data literate ways. So it's been an adventure for the last decade and yeah, it's not going to stop. It's it's just going to keep getting more and more interesting, I think. Mm, yeah, very interesting. So Scott, thank you for joining us on this podcast and also for giving us some very useful insights into data publishing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Asia Edit at Al podcast. For more publishing advice, visit asiaedit.com. I'm Trevor Lane, and I hope you tune in next time for more expert publishing tips.